Good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys. We are continuing our series, Silent Killers. This is part three. Listen, if this is the first time you've been with us in this series, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel. Check out parts one and two. They're all archived there for you, free of charge, of course. Love to have you just kind of go listen to those, learn some, grow some. And I love feedback. So if you have questions or comments you want to make, I'd love to hear those as well. Also, if you are newer to Forest Park, you may not know, but on, you can see on the screen uh, ways that you can follow along with the message through the YouVersion app. It's free. You can download that to your phone. All the scriptures. I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures today. So all the scriptures are there for you. So you don't have to keep trying to find them or look them up. They'll all be there. You can take notes inside the app. You can email yourself the notes you take. Just a great user-friendly app to use. So if you want to follow along, uh, that's a great way to do it. All right, let's jump into part three of Silent Killers. When I was a teenager on many Friday evenings around midnight, you could find me lying on my couch or floor watching a show hosted by the now famous Sammy Terry. It's a playoff of the word cemetery, okay? His show opened each weekend with deep, gloomy, gonging bells, fog rising from the floor, himself lying in a casket. Then he would open the casket to creaking sounds and carefully crawl out, adorned with ghoulish makeup, a cape, and an eerie laugh. He would introduce the scary movie of the night to his audience. I didn't care much about the movie. I was enthralled with Sammy. He was more frightening than any of the movies he introduced. I remember thinking as I was 13, 14 years old, I don't know why I'm watching this. I'm never going to sleep after this. And then the next Friday evening, around midnight, I'd flip over to the channel and watch Sammy Terry get scared, say I'll never do it again, only to repeat it the next weekend. Any of you enjoy kind of that, that weird feeling, that little scary feeling you get? Maybe you go to a haunted house or you watch a scary movie, that foreboding, unnerving feeling in the pit of your stomach. It's okay. Anybody like that? Okay. A couple, three freaks in the room. All right, good. You know, one of the reasons we like those feelings, I guess, is because it, it brings an emotion, a unique emotion, a scary emotion without the danger. I mean, you visit a haunted house and people jump out, cobwebs hang down the hall, frightening sounds of people screaming in the background, all of it producing an emotion that naturally rises when danger presents. But knowing underneath it all, it's just make-believe. There's no real danger here. I mean, after the guy with the fake chainsaw chases you and your friends, you all go out for burger and fries afterwards. So it's a fear, but it doesn't actually lead to anything dangerous. No real risk. But fear grows up, doesn't it? I mean, the fear I experienced as a young teenager and the kind of fear we experience in a haunted house is what is called childlike fear. It's a, it's a fear of what you don't know, what you can't see, what might be behind the door. But like us, fear becomes an adult. And what we fear as adults is more frightening than anything we feared as kids. I wish the only thing we had to be afraid of was the monster in the closet that turns out to be a winter coat or the sound in the attic that we are certain is a serial killer only to realize it is only a branch scraping the side of the house. But regrettably, as we get older, our monsters become real. They don't hide in closets or under beds. They come in the forms of diseases and heart attacks, job layoffs, rising interest rates, aging parents and infertility looming world wars and drug addiction, existential questions and marital affairs, house fires, car accidents, floods and tornadoes. We live 
in a scary world with evils everywhere. And media and religion play on our fears. Currently, if you struggle with fear, I highly advise you not to watch the news or listen to most preachers right now. False religion and corrupt media profit when people are afraid. So here's what I want to do today. I want to uncover fear. I want to look at it for what it is, what it's not, and provide you some truth that will set you free. Because fear is a silent killer. And for many people gathered here, many people watching online, if your fear, if we could reach into your life and get a hold of some dials to turn up joy, turn down sadness, turn down this, turn up that, if we could reach into your world and turn down the dial of fear, reduce fear in your life, new horizons would open for you everywhere. So here's what I know about fear. Let's just kind of expose fear. Let's open it up. Let's dissect it a little bit. Here's what I know about fear. Fear is birthed when what we love is threatened. When what we hold to be valuable to us, when it is out of our control, when you cannot regulate the outcome of what is important in your life, fear is hatched. Why? Because you might lose what you love or what you love might be hurt. And that's when fear arises every single time. Think about it. You love your life. You love your freedom. You love your family. You love your friends. You love your future. You love your dreams. You love your plans. Each one is valuable. And when what is important is threatened, fear is born. And I want you to begin to pay attention. If you're not now, I want you to begin to pay attention to your fears. Why? Because your fears reveal what you love, what you value what is most important to you. So pay attention to the fears in your life because it will tell you a lot about yourself, what you prioritize, what is most important in your life. Now, before we move any further, I want to deal with two what I call fuel, uh, fuel excuse me, fear-fueling myths. That's not easy to say over and again. Fear-fueling myths, two of them. The first one is the fear, is the fear, the myth of control. Contrary to what you might believe, you are not in control. There are so many variables in life. We are never in control. And when you try to be in control, you fuel fear in your life. We are not in control of the decisions other people make. Our government, whether it goes to war or not, our interest rates as they rise and fall, we're not in control of the weather. If a person decides to drink or drive and drink and drive, purchase what they do when they purchase guns, how our bodies will react to sicknesses or diseases, we are not in control of so many things. And the more you attempt to control things, and the more you believe that you need to be in control, the more your incorrect thinking will produce and fuel fear. The second myth is the myth of certainty. Those of us who struggle with fear, our fears are heightened when we require certainty before we trust or attempt something. Folks, you can eat healthy, you can save money, you can get a good education, you can wear your seatbelt, you can buy excellent insurance, you can do all of this and more attempting to beat the odds, but you know as well as I do, diseases affect the healthiest among us. Good people die in car accidents and random acts of violence. Aging is affecting all of us every day. Life is uncertain. It is why Jesus told us so many years ago 
Stop worrying about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Live in the moment. There's enough worry to go along with this 24 hours. You certainly do not need to add more to it. You can't control tomorrow and you cannot be certain of anything. And the more you attempt to control and the more you have to have reassurance before you do anything. The more fear you will fuel, eventually it will become a raging fire and spread all throughout your life. So what you fear and the level of your fear reveal a lot about you. Pay attention to the fears in the background of your life. It will tell you a lot about yourself. Well, Scott, how do I pay attention? You turn down the noise in your life and listen to the background of your life. Pay careful attention. You will hear things in the quiet you cannot hear in the noise. When you get home, maybe sometime this week or something, try this. Turn off your TV. Your TV will not know what to do. It probably hasn't been off in years, but turn it off, and it actually does have an off switch. Find it and turn it off. Turn your computer off. Turn your phone off. It also has a, a command that you can actually shut the phone off. Try it. Turn off all the electronics. Sit quietly in a room and just listen. At first you won't hear anything. It'll sound somewhat quiet because your ears are adjusted to all the electronics buzzing around you, but in a minute or two, your ears will adjust to the new quietness and all of a sudden you will hear things that you have never heard before. Unnoticeable sounds right now in your life will be there. You will hear the air conditioning click on or click off. You will hear the heat come on or off, the wind blowing against the house, a dog barking a couple of houses down, a car driving by, someone talking in the next yard, a siren in the distance. If you live in an older house, the floor creaking, maybe water dripping, or the family that used to live in your house 50 years ago talking. Pay attention. You will hear things that are always there, but you don't hear it because your life is so loud. What's interesting is all those sounds are always happening, plus a hundred others, but your life is so loud you can't pick them up. Fear is sitting in the background of our lives, affecting our lives, but we don't know it's there. So begin to turn down the noise and listen to the things you are afraid of. Listen to the fears in your life. It affects us more than we realize. It sits in the background, always present. And when we turn down the noise of our lives and listen to the fear, pay attention to what's behind the fear, we will become aware of what we love, what we value, where we place our trust, where we place our hope, where we place our future. Becoming familiar with your fears and what fuels them is one of the most healthy actions you can take because when you do, you are well on your way to becoming self aware. We have a lot of people who are not self-aware. Why is that important? That we become self-aware? Why should we know our fears? Why should we know what fuels them? Because fear weakens us. Fear drains us. Fear empties you of what is necessary to be successful, joyful, and at peace. Unchecked fear will rob you of opportunities, eat away at relationships, dismantle plans. Fear is like acid poured into the gears of your future. It slowly erodes potential. Did you know, physically, fear, when you have fear in your emotional state, fear in your body, unchecked, fear weakens our immune systems and can cause cardiovascular disease, ulcers, IBS, increased or decreased fertility, and accelerated aging. Fear. It's like poison. 
Fear can impair formation of long-term memories and cause damage to certain parts of the brain, eventually leaving a person anxious most of the time. Fear can also lead to several mental health consequences, including fatigue, depression, and eventually, if left unchecked, PTSD. So as you can imagine, fear makes people easier to control and conquer. It's why fear is the preferred edge used by governments, cults, and religions. Because if you make people afraid, they will pay more in taxes to get rid of that fear. If you make them afraid, they will buy the book to find the the solution. If you make people afraid, they will vote in a candidate that promises to get rid of all the things you are afraid of. If you make people afraid, they will sacrifice their entire life on the altar of whatever it is you're offering. And it is why, it is why, God's most frequent command is do not be afraid. It is over and over and over presented in Scripture. Over and over and over, God says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Watch this. I just put a few of the Scriptures. We could spend 30 minutes literally going through the Scriptures that are in the Bible that tell us not to be afraid. Just listen to a few of them. At the very beginning, Genesis 15, 1, God speaks to Abram. After these events, the Lord's word came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. Genesis 26, 24, the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Don't be afraid. This is the next generation after Abraham goes away, the next generation. Don't be afraid because I am with you. I will bless you and I will give you many children for my servant Abraham's sake. 2 Kings 1, 15, then the Lord's messenger said to Elijah, go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. So Elijah set out to go with him to the king. Isaiah 7, 4, be careful and stay calm. Don't fear and don't lose heart. Isaiah 44, 8, don't tremble, have no fear. Didn't I proclaim it? Didn't I inform you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no other rock. I know of none. Matthew 14, 27, just then Jesus spoke to them, be encouraged, it's me, don't be afraid. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I give to you not as the world gives, don't be troubled or afraid. We could go through scripture after scripture after scripture, most frequent command all through the Bible, don't be afraid. Why? It weakens you, it destroys you, it completely robs you of all your potential and everything God wants to accomplish in your life. Did you know the first command Jesus gave after his resurrection was don't be afraid? You see, folks, when you are afraid, you are not free. When you are afraid, you cannot think clearly. When you are afraid, you are not at peace. When you are afraid, your body begins to break down. When you are afraid, you have little to no faith. When you are afraid, you are easy to control. And when you are bound and out of your mind and anxious and sick and you lack faith and you can't accomplish your purpose, you can't accomplish your calling, you can't accomplish the reason you are alive. Basically, when you are afraid, you are out of commission. So over and over and over in almost every single book of the Bible, don't be afraid. Now, a few other things you need to know about fear before we get into the main story I want to give you out of Scripture today. Dr. Ed Welch, he's a clinical psychologist, also a pastor. He gives four really big kind of headlines about fear, how fear works in our lives. Let me just give them to you quickly. He says fear wants to be boss. Fear wants authority in your life. 
Fear is loud. Fear screams at you. I want to be boss. I want you to pay attention to me. I want you to do what I say. Fear claims to tell you how life really is, and it won't be easily persuaded otherwise. So fear wants to be boss. Just know the nature of fear and how fear thinks, if you will. It wants to be boss. Number two, fear is impatient. When fear escalates, it wants relief, and it wants it now. So fear convinces you, here's the danger, fear convinces you to try anything to experience peace. When you're afraid, you're anxious, your physiological makeup is affected by it, you feel it in your stomach, you feel it in your mind, you're, you're nervous, you're, anything that promises relief, it's right there, take it. Fear wants relief now. The problem with that is we often take things that make our condition worse than it was before we took it. This will promise relief. This will promise relief. And we take these things and bring them into our lives, and we end up worse than we were before. That's, that's how fear works. Number three, he says, fear runs away from what causes it, but often doesn't know where to run to. So what happens is when you're a fearful person, you're just running around and running around and running around trying to find relief. You go to this job, this job, this person, this person, this church, this church, this relationship, that relationship, this drug, that drug. Whatever you can do, you run away from what causes you fear, but you don't know where to go. And fourthly, fear eventually realizes that peace and rest reside in someone, not something eventually you realize, unfortunately, sometimes it's at the end of our lives, we realize that it wasn't the things we were looking for, it was a person we were looking for, it's people we're looking for, not pills. For instance, when kids are afraid, what's, what's the thing they want? Mom and dad, right? An adult, someone to come in and comfort them. When you're walking in dark woods, you want a companion, even if it's a little dog, you don't care, just give me somebody, give me something warm, you know, I just want to hold on to something. Fear calls out for a bigger person than us. It's why we're always, always, always looking for a hero. It's why the Marvel movies are so popular. It's why so many hero movies have stayed with us and hero stories have stayed with us for centuries. We're always looking for that person bigger than us, that person greater than us, that person who has the strength we don't have. And that leads me to the story I want to give you today from Scripture. It's a story you've heard over and over again. It's found in 1 Samuel 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. I grew up with this story. I could tell you this story by heart probably when I was 10 years old. I heard it over and over and over and over and over again. Let me give you a little history. I want to kind of get a running start on this story because I'm going to introduce this story to you, and then I want to give you some, some thoughts about this story that maybe you've never considered before. I hope when you leave today, you will see this story differently than you've ever seen it before and apply this to fear. Here's the history Here's kind of how this story unfolded. In the second half of the 11th century BC, obviously a long time ago, the Philistines, who were the you know, promised enemy of Israel, the Philistines began moving east, winding their way upstream along the floor of the Elah Valley. The Elah Valley is where the battle takes place in just a moment. Their goal was to capture the mountain ridge near Bethlehem and split Saul's kingdom in two, King Saul. Saul. He was the king of Israel at the time. The Philistines were battle-tested and dangerous and the sworn enemies of the Israelites. Alarmed, King Saul gathered his men and hastened down from the mountains to confront them. 
The Philistines set up camp along the southern ridge of Elah. The Israelites pitched their tents on the other side of Elah along the northern ridge, which left the two armies looking across the ravine at each other. Neither dared to move because to attack the enemy meant that you needed to descend down the hill and then make a suicidal climb up the enemy's ridge to the other side. And if the Philistines did it first, Israelites would kill them. If the Israelites did it first, the Philistines would kill them. So they both sat on the opposite mountains and the valley in between, and they just kind of stared at each other, and they were in a stalemate. Finally, the Philistines had had enough. They sent their greatest warrior down into the valley to resolve the deadlock one-on-one. His name, Goliath. He was a giant, between seven, eight feet tall, probably weighing 450, 500 pounds. He wore a bronze helmet, full body armor. He carried a javelin, a spear, a sword, and he had an attendant who preceded him carrying a large shield. David, part of the Israelites, he was considered a man after God's heart. He was a poet, a songwriter, a singer. He loved God with a passion. He spent hours with God composing worship music. Most of us would consider David a spiritually mature man of God, even though he was a young man at the time. Every day, Goliath appeared, taunting and threatening the Israelites. David had heard about this taunting of this giant, and he became fed up with it. He goes down to where the Israelites are. He says, what's going on with this giant coming here every day and taunting us? And David says, I'm done with this taunting. I'm done with this jeering. He takes it upon himself. He picks up five stones. He places them in his bag. David takes his sling, walks out into the valley of Elah, and faces the giant. Verse 43 of 1 Samuel 17, the Philistine asked David, the Goliath, the giant asked David, am I some sort of dog that you came to me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said to David, and I'll feed your flesh to the wild birds and the wild animals. But David told the Philistine, you are coming against me with a sword, spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of the heavenly hosts, the God of Israel's army, the one you have insulted. Now listen to what David says. Today, this day, the Lord will hand you over to me. I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will feed your dead body and the dead bodies of the entire Philistine camp to the wild birds and the wild animals. Then the whole world will know that there is a God on Israel's side. Now, most of you know what happens next. David places a stone about the size of a small fist. So it was a pretty good sized stone. He puts it in his sling, and David was was skilled with a sling. He slings it and fires it, hitting the giant dead center in the forehead, knocking him out cold or killing him at that very moment. Goliath falls down. David walks over to the giant, pulls this massive sword that Goliath had been covering in his sleeve, pulls it out, and slices off Goliath's head. David then picks up his head and carries it back to Jerusalem. What a story. What a, what a great kid story, right? I mean, that's just an awesome kid story. You should see it on flannel graph. It's really cool. And I, I grew up with this story. 
I mean, I have heard this story over and over and over again. As I said a moment ago, I could tell you the story by heart when I was 10 years old. I've watched the story acted out in plays. I've seen it on TV. Um, I've preached the story many times. I have taught the story many times. But I want you to listen to me very carefully. But for years, and I mean years, I taught and applied this story incorrectly. In fact, I went back this week and looked at the last time I presented this story here at Forest Park, and what I did, I presented it incorrectly. And I'm sorry, but I did. Here's how I used to teach and apply the story. The Israelites were afraid of Goliath. But through faith and courage, David took on Goliath with a sling. And David defeated Goliath. That's the teaching part. Here's the application part. You and I will face giants in our lives. We will have Goliaths come out and taunt us. We will either run from them or we will step up and fight them. Trust God to give you the courage you need to defeat the Goliaths in your life. Now, this approach is typical. It fires people up. Trust me, I've preached it and fires people up. It challenges them to step up and fight the giants in their lives. And it is a great revival sermon. Like if you go to a revival and they're teaching on David and Goliath and you become, you know, David and go out and fight the giants, everybody gets excited and they all buy the guy's books and, you know, everybody gets all excited and takes a big offering and it's just a real big, whoo. And it's completely wrong. And I'm sorry I'm messing with your favorite Sunday school story and maybe you'll never come back. That's okay. But see, here's what I've learned over all these years of teaching and pastoring and following God, trying to. We got to work at not only understanding the stories of the Bible, but correctly applying them. I taught the history correctly. I taught what happens in the story correctly, but I applied the story incorrectly. Just, Just follow along with me, okay? This story is not about you and I becoming like David. That's not what the story is about. This story is not about you and I mustering up enough courage and enough strength to fight the Goliaths in our life. This story is not about learning how to defeat the giants in your life through standing up to them and killing them with your faith and quoting scripture or whatever. No, 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 no. This story is not about us. This story is not really even about David. This story is not about Goliath. This story is about Jesus. How so? If you've been with us at Forest Park, I've mentioned in the past that Old Testament stories are shadows, and Jesus is the substance. He is the light casting the shadows. Jesus is our David who went out into the battle for us and defeated the giants of sin and condemnation and guilt and fear and intimidation and all the enemies of God. This story is about Jesus cutting off their heads 
and parading their heads through the streets. And because he did, he declares us free and victorious, and we now are more than conquerors. That's what this story is about. David and Goliath are the shadows of Jesus and the enemies of God. Look at a few details. Goliath taunts Israel. Every day, this massive giant comes down and talks to the people of God. He insults them. He ridicules them. He says that they're nothing, that they're, they're, they're fearful and, and weak. Everyone was scared. Everyone was intimidated. And they had reason to be. According to the story, Goliath was about eight feet tall. As I mentioned, weighed 450, 500 pounds. That's not counting all the bronze armor he had on. He was skilled with a javelin. He was skilled with a sword. He was covered in armor. Who wouldn't be afraid? I wouldn't face him. Would you? Well, I'll tell you what, Scott, if I was there, man, I would go out there. I'd take my sling. I'd trust God. Oh, come on. You can't even get out of bed on time. I'd go out there, I'd fight Goliath, I'd trust God to just this. You can't keep your temper in traffic. You argue with your husband and wife all the time. You've got struggles with your thought life. You're dealing with eating too much, smoking too much, drinking too much, attitude problems. You're fighting in your marriage, fighting with your friends. You've got unforgiveness in your life. You've got all kinds of mess, trauma in your childhood you've never dealt with. All kinds of issues, but you're going to go out and you're going to fight Goliath. You're going to trust God to do great things. Let me tell you something. Been there, done that. You know where I would be if I were in the story? Cowering on the mountain with the Israelites. And so would you. This story is told exactly the way it is for a reason. It is setting up a giant so big, so powerful, so strong, so skilled, nobody could defeat him. To show us, tucked away in this story, the gospel, that we cannot defeat the giants in our lives through our own power and through conventional weaponry to let us know that we cannot defeat fear on our own. And we need someone bigger and stronger and more than able to defeat the giants. And that someone is not a man or a woman with great faith like David. That someone is our heavenly David, Jesus. The story is not saying, get stronger, have more courage, defeat your enemies, be a David. I'm going to tell you straight up, that would not be good news for me. Well, Scott, I know you're struggling with X, Y, and Z. What you need is more faith. I know, but I've been, I've been doing everything to get more faith. Well, you, you, obviously you hadn't found the secret yet. You need to keep on praying and keep on going to church and keep on struggling and keep on trying. Okay, well, I just, you know, I'm quoting scripture and, and I'm praying and I'm fasting and I'm reading the Bible and I'm doing everything. Well, you got to somehow figure it out because you need to be like David and you need to go out there and destroy the enemies of God. It's not good news to me. Not good news to me. You know what this story's telling us? No matter how much skill you have, 
No matter how trained you are, you cannot defeat the giants of sin and fear and condemnation by yourself. We need a David to defeat our Goliath. Who are we in the story? We are the Israelites who are scared, intimidated, and we are waiting for our hero to show up. And the hero is David. But not a shadow, but only a shadow of the real David, the one who sits on the eternal throne of David, who came through the lineage of David, and because he did, he is referred to as the son of David, Jesus Christ. A few other details. After David defeats Goliath, what does he do? I just told you, what does he do? Come on, you're smart. What did he, what did he do, huh? Chopped off his head. Genesis 3.15. God looks at Satan says, one day, the Messiah is going to come. And you're going to nip at his heel. You're going to inflict some wounds. You're going to hurt him. But he will crush your head. It's a shadow of what will come. Then what does David do? He picks up Goliath's head and he carries it back to Jerusalem and he buries it. Within that culture, when enemies were defeated, the conquering army, the heroes, would often chain the enemy soldiers together and lead them through the streets back to the conquering army city. And they did this to humiliate the enemy, to make a public disgrace of them. So that when they led those enemies back chained and they would be walking and the heroes would be leading the procession, everybody could see who was defeated and everybody could see who were the winners. And everybody knew that the conquering army had won and these were the spoils. These were the enemies. These were the ones and they would jeer and they would throw things at them and mock them as they were led through the streets back to the conquering city. David picked up the head it was crushed, cut off, and carried it back to Jerusalem so everybody could see. And what did Christ Jesus do for us? Tucked away in the beautiful book of Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, when he disarmed, when he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal parade. When Paul wrote that, everybody knew what he meant Jesus grabbed every enemy of God and drugged them through the universe and displayed them to the, 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 the demons of hell and all the enemies of God and showed that when he said it is finished, it is finished, and he paraded all of the enemies of God in front of all of hell and the universe itself. Him picking up that head of Goliath was a typology. It was a shadow of what Christ would do one day. The gospel is foreshadowed in the story of David and Goliath and anyone who teaches that it is about us gathering up enough power and us getting enough courage and us getting enough faith to defeat the giants in our life are doing the gospel a disservice. What David does to Goliath physically kills him, cuts off his head, parades him through the streets. The Messiah does, Jesus does spiritually. He fulfills the shadow. Look at this exchange. This is 1 Samuel, uh, beginning at verse, 1 Samuel 17, 53, and I'll put up a scripture for you in just a second. When the Israelites came back from chasing the Philistines, 
Because after they killed Goliath, they, oh, let's go. And they chased the Philistines. The Philistines, they, they plundered the camp of the Philistines. They took all the belongings. They took their treasures. They took it all. David, listen, David took the head of the Philistine, Goliath, and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. Now when Saul, King Saul, saw David go out to meet the Philistine, so David walks down to the Valley of Elah, and he confronts the Philistine. He asks, Saul asks Abner, the army general, hey, Admiral, Abner, um, whose son is that boy? Because see, at this time, King Saul didn't know who David was. Who, 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 who's, who's this guy? He's going down to confront Goliath. Who is he? As surely as you live, Abner says, your majesty, I don't know who the guy is. Then find out whose son that young man is, the king replied. Watch this. So when David came back from killing the Philistine, Abner sent for him and presented him to Saul. The Philistine's head was still in David's hand. I want you to imagine this scene. He goes over and slices off his head, picks it up, and Saul says, whose boy are you? Come here, I want to talk to you. He picks it up and walks over to Saul. Blood is just dripping out of this massive giant's head. It's a gruesome scene. And he holds it and says, yeah, what do you want? And Saul says to him, whose son are you, my boy? I am the son of your servant Jesse from Bethlehem. Jesus. Born in Bethlehem. The savior of the world. It's a shadow of what will come. It's a shadow of what will come. The gospel tucked away in the story. Listen to me very carefully. Here's what I know about you, okay? Some of you are afraid. Fear is silently killing you. You have a giant standing in front of you and you are trembling. Listen carefully. As we read earlier, over and over and over again, God tells us, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I want to say, why not? Do you know what I'm facing? Why wouldn't I be afraid? I want to give you some thoughts on why I want you to not be afraid. Okay? First of all, what the command do not be afraid says about the character of God. Who, you tell me, who says don't be afraid over and over? Who does that sound like? I'll tell you what it sounds like. It sounds like a loving, gentle father who cares for the well-being of his kids. You want to know what God is like? God is like a father who comes into the room when the kid's crying, looks him in the face and says, sweetheart, listen, don't be afraid. Now, how can a father possibly tell a child not to be afraid? Because the father knows what the kid doesn't. See, sweetheart, the thump you hear in the closet, I know what it is. Don't be afraid. See, I I know the shadows that you see in the house make you afraid. Don't be afraid. 
I know what you hear on the side of the house and you think it's someone trying to get in. It's just a branch. I know what you don't. And I can confidently say, don't be afraid. David writes in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. See, I know what you don't. And even when you say goodbye on this earth, it's just a shadow. So I can confidently look you in the eye, my child, and I can say, don't be afraid. I'll tell you why you don't have to be afraid. I love what Tolkien says. One day, all sad things will become untrue. Say, well, that's not the Bible. Okay, fine. I'll give you a Bible passage. Revelation 21. Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear. Everything everything sad one day will become untrue. Every pain, every hurt, every disappointment, every time you have wept, and cried and hurt because someone broke your heart, broke your trust, broke your family, and everything you've ever done to anybody else that has ever broken them, one day God will erase it, and all of it will become untrue. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore, for the former things have what? Passed away. All the things of the past, gone. And watch what he says. Then the one seated on the throne, the one who has all authority, who knows what we don't know, says, look, I am making what? All things new. All things means what? all things. You don't have to fear. Your father knows what you don't. And he walked into the valley. And he defeated Goliath. And he says it's finished. And you, my friend, are more than a conqueror. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking into our lives today. Thank you for this gospel tucked away in the story that we've heard so many times. And we took that story that is supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be about the gospel. It's supposed to be about what you've done for us. And we twisted it and made it into what we have to do for you. I don't have the strength to be the David I don't have the ability to face the Goliath. But thank you. Thank you for walking into that valley for me. Thank you for walking down into the valley of Elah for me and looking that giant in the eye and crushing his head. 
and parading him through all the streets to let everybody know that we are more than conquerors. Thank you for loving us and forgiving us and washing us and making us clean. Thank you for draping your mercy all around us and let us swim in your love. Thank you that we can rest knowing that even when we walk through a valley that appears to be nothing but death, it's just a shadow. You are the light, and we are walking toward you every day. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, obviously, a huge part of that message is about fear, but one of the things I love the most is this is obviously one of the most fearful times probably in our entire country's lives. We're so fear-based. Uh, I think the most important question out of this message we need to be asking is not how much faith I have, but where do I put my faith, in Jesus or in myself? So hope you were challenged. Hope you were able to see that story from a different perspective today. Three quick announcements. Number one, if you're new here, please consider going to that website right there, fplive.org connect. Fill out a connect card virtually on your phone. If you take it to the new here area after service, we'd be happy to get to know you, answer any questions you have about Forest Park. If you're old school and don't want to do it on your phone, there's always physical copies in the seat back in front of you. Whether this is your first Sunday or you've been coming for a while and yet to connect, we would love to get to know you better, your family, and also answer any questions you have about FPC. Number two is we have baptism coming up in less than a month here at Forest Park, Sunday, November 12th, right after the 11 a.m. service in that main lobby. We'll be baptizing people into faith in Jesus Christ. And we believe baptism is one of the most important steps you can take after becoming a Christian. So if you have not been baptized since you become a Christian, we would encourage you to sign up to be baptized on November 12th. All you have to do is go to that website and fill out the form. We'll take care of the rest, the, uh, everything you need, the clothes, the towels, everything will be set up for you. I encourage you to invite your family and friends if you are being baptized to celebrate that step with you. And of course, if you don't know much about baptism and you want more information about what we believe, why it's important, you can always find me or Pastor Scott in the lobby after service to talk to you about that. And then last but not least is coming up November 18th, which is a Saturday evening at 7 p.m. here at Forest Park. We'll be having our night of worship, and this will be about an hour to hour and 10 minutes of worship, just like you experienced this morning on top of communion together. We believe it's important not only to take communion as a believer and family together, but worship together. So I would encourage you Saturday, November 18th, Saturday evening at 7 p.m. to not only come, but bring people with you, whether it's your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, whoever's in your life. Invite them to come worship with you. Again, they don't have to be a part of Forest Park. They can literally come worship with you Saturday night and then go to their church Sunday morning. So this is a great opportunity for all people from all churches to come and worship together as one family in Christ. So I hope that you'll put that on your calendar Saturday, November 18th. Uh, guys, thank you so much for your attention. Thanks for being here. I hope that it was impactful and meaningful for you this morning. And I hope more than anything, you have a great day and we'll see you next Sunday.